Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. God loves you and wants to bless you, and I just really hope that your day has been going well. Uh, Just stay in in God's Word, and uh, He will bless your steps. And I know that you are uh, listening today because I I think you want to come and learn more about uh, God and His Word and what's going on in the world. And I got a full full schedule for you today. I'm going to start with uh, Rob Louie, who's the executive editor of The Daily Signal. It's always good to find out what's going on in our great capital of Washington, D.C. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bill. It's good to be back with you. Thank you. So the Heritage Foundation has got a pretty ambitious campaign, Fight for America, Vote for America. Tell us about that. That's right. This is the first time in our 47-year history at the Heritage Foundation, of which the Daily Signal is a part, uh, that we've done something like this. And we decided that uh, there's so many uh, big issues facing our country. We wanted to remind our voters uh, what uh, what was uh, what was going on. So, uh, so the three ads uh, really uh, you know paint a contrast between you know some of the darker forces at work in our country trying to destroy. Uh, our great cities and, and monuments, uh, along with those that uh, are trying to bring light and hope uh, to the future. And so uh, the ads will be airing over the next uh, four weeks, uh, right up until Election Day, uh, really to give Americans a sense of of what is, uh, what is going on and what's at stake. So, Bill, thanks for bringing it up. Uh, we are uh, looking forward to seeing uh, the results and, and hopefully getting uh, Heritage's message out there more broadly. Yeah, now, Rob, the extreme left is, I know they're trying to work to undermine the integrity of the elections. Uh, so I wish you'd say something about that as well. Well, this is a, a debate that it seems that we're, we're having every day. And, uh, and of course, uh, you have had my great colleague, Hans von Spakovsky, on your show to talk about uh, the importance of election integrity and why every vote uh, should count. And, and look, we, we shouldn't take voting for granted. I mean, look at people all over the world who don't have the, the opportunities that we do as Americans. And so it's so significant, I think, that we cherish uh, that right to vote and we all do everything we can uh, to, to take part in that. So one of the things that, that we're recommending is that uh, if you can and you're able is that you vote in person this year uh, with so many absentee and mail-in ballots uh, either getting lost or being rejected. Uh, don't take the chance. Uh, and again, you have to do this uh, safely. Uh, and, and we know that not everybody's able to to make it to a polling place on election day, but that is the best way to make sure that your vote counts. And so uh, there are uh, alternatives. Uh, there are people who for years have voted by absentee ballot. There are people who vote early. Uh, I've done that uh, in the past where I knew I was going to be too busy on election day. So I would go vote at uh, the government building uh, maybe a week or so ahead of time. So do whatever you can. I saw Mike Pence is going to Indiana this Friday. He's going to vote early there with his wife, Karen Pence. Uh, so, you know, it's uh, it's really important that we all exercise the civic responsibility and make sure that we get out and vote. Yeah. And Rob, speaking of Hans, your colleague, he just put a, a recent article out as of, I think, yesterday that there are uh, tens of thousands of cases of possible voter fraud um, in this new report. Uh, Tell us more about that. 
Sure. And this comes from uh, a new report from the Public Interest Legal Foundation, which uh, which shows that uh, really the security and integrity of the voting pro uh, process is, is really, um, really at stake here. Uh, they found more than 140,000 instances of potential election fraud uh, dating between just the past two elections, 2016 and 2018. Now, uh, these cases were everything from individuals who voted illegally in multiple states uh, to someone who uh, was trying to vote in the name of somebody who had passed away. So uh, really uh, a significant number. Think about that, 140,000 instances. Uh, I forget the exact number. Was it 537 votes that separated George W. Bush and Al Gore in Florida? Wasn't yeah. it something in that respect, Bill? Um, so we know uh, how close uh, these elections can be. Uh, and we've seen in so certain cases, even at the national national level, uh, right there in your, your state of Minnesota, right? Uh, I remember the Al Franken, Norm Coleman race, uh, mm -hmm. you know, came down to, to just a handful in a court court fight. So, you know, this is, uh, this is an issue that I think is on the front of the minds of a lot of people uh, who have grave concerns uh, now that we're in a different situation because of COVID-19, and they don't want uh, people to take advantage of the voting process and commit fraud. There are a number of uh, deceased uh, registrants on the voter rolls in 41 states. So I did I did hear a story yesterday, which was encouraging, where this guy in Florida tried to get a ballot for his his wife who had uh, died a couple of years before. And they caught up with him and they said, hey, not only is your wife not alive anymore, but you have, looks like you've maybe forged her signature because it didn't match up with the one they had on file. And this guy is now, uh, uh, was arrested and put in jail. Yeah, and it, it, right. You hear you hear these uh, stories, and, and one of the things that we have at uh, at the Heritage Foundation is an election fraud database, mm. and it is uh, it is really comprehensive with over one thousand uh, examples of criminal convictions that uh, that people can just browse and and see for themselves uh, what um, you know certainly what is going on. And it is uh, it is available for all of your listeners to check out. It's heritage.org slash voter fraud, heritage.org slash voter fraud. And, and take a look at these sampling of cases uh, from all across the country uh, to see for yourself uh, what some of them look at look like. Some of them are, are mail-in voting. Some of them are, are you know, taking advantage of uh, people who've passed away and voting in their name. Uh, but as this recent report that you brought up uh, mentions, there are a significant number of, of different ways that people are trying to game the system. And it's really, uh, really disappointing that, that people would try to do this and, and, and shape elections in this manner. Manner because when somebody votes fraudulently, that's uh, that that means your vote doesn't count as much as it should. Uh, they're taking that that away from you, and so we need to combat this. It's a serious issue. It's not something that uh, that we should dismiss, and we need to be all the more vigilant. Which is why we've also been pushing for people to be election workers, uh, poll watchers, whatever role you want to play on election day. I think is really important uh, to get out there, particularly young people. Uh, I think that uh, you know there are there are individuals who who are susceptible to COVID-19 and don't want to put themselves in that position that they may have served in the past. So, um, you know, one of the things we're doing at the Heritage Foundation is taking Election Day off and encouraging our own employees to get out there and participate in the civic process in some way. Yeah, I really like going and voting in person. When I take my ballot and, and it goes through the machine, I feel like, uh, yeah, done, taken care of. 
you're absolutely right. I feel the same way. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't know what I'll be doing so this year because of COVID, but right. you know, I always liked bringing my kids along with me so they could see the process for themselves. And hopefully when they're of age to vote, uh, we'll, we'll have that same appreciation. We, we live in a country where still uh, there's a significant number of people who don't turn out to vote. Uh, you know, participation, I think, has you know, rightly increased because of what, so much of what's been at stake in recent years. Uh, but it could and certainly still should be higher, Bill. So we need to do everything we can to to encourage people to get out there and vote. Mm-hmm. So, Rob, what else have we learned about Amy Coney Barrett? Yes, well, uh, we're, we we know a lot about Amy Coney Barrett uh, from uh, from the more than 100 decisions that she's issued from her time serving on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, of course, from her her family uh, and how much it means to her to have those seven children, and uh, and of course, uh, you know. There's been so much a focus on her, on her religion, Bill, uh, and I think in some cases it's been unfortunate that the media has decided to to attack her for for some of her personal religious beliefs without any indication that this is going to be uh, how she rules from the bench. In fact, she stated the exact opposite, that she wouldn't let her her personal faith uh, interfere with the Constitution and the rule of law in the United States, which uh, which obviously she's sworn to uphold. So uh, so a lot of uh, a lot of debate. But I think the one thing that's uh, that's coming becoming clear is there's really uh, very few things that are sticking to her because uh, she is such a qualified candidate for, for this position on the Supreme Court. And so the left has uh, has struggled to to make a dent in her, in her reputation as a result of that. Uh, she's coming up for her confirmation hearings next week. So they will begin on Monday on on a federal holiday, Columbus Day. They'll have opening statements and then she will be testifying on Tuesday, answering questions from the Senate. Senators. Uh, of course, she's met a lot of Republican senators already. Um, a few of those senators have, have come down with uh, with the coronavirus. There are some Democrats who are now calling for a delay in the hearings. Uh, I don't expect that to happen. It seems that they're going to, to move forward. And uh, they certainly uh, have collected a lot of information from her. She's answered their questions. Uh, she's going to do so in person next week. And they'll plan to confirm her that last week of October ahead of the election. Mm-hmm. We Realize that when there are firemen uh, who develop COVID, uh, the fire department still runs, um, and the same for police and and other uh, essential organizations and businesses. Um, it's it certainly seems that uh, Congress should be able to show up and figure out a way to do this, especially if there's going to be a possibly contested election. Well, certainly, and uh, there's no place uh, like Washington where hypocrisy runs so strong. So you have members of Congress who uh, have not only participated in virtual committee hearings uh, and and have done so successfully, but you also have James Comey, who just testified virtually last week um, before Congress. I mean, there are so many notable examples of how they have been able to successfully carry out their business. Um, The House of Representatives, which of course is controlled by Democrats, even instituted proxy voting uh, for this purpose where members of Congress don't even need to personally show up to vote on the floor anymore. Uh, They can do a a proxy vote. So yes, you're absolutely correct that uh, even Congress needs to adapt to to coronavirus and and make things work. Uh, The the, the people's business shouldn't slow down. And uh, and Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham and the other senators who are are going to be uh, so crucial to this process have said that they uh, that they won't let these uh, political excuses get in the way. Rob, how personal do you think it's going to get with Amy? 
I think it's going to get uh, particularly personal uh, when it comes to her religious beliefs. We've already seen that from her first uh, committee hearing when Senator Dianne Feinstein of California went after her. Uh, so the you know the dogma lives loudly within her. Uh, you saw uh, Senator Dick Durbin make also some comments about her religious beliefs, and I think that that's really unfortunate. In fact, uh, Kay James, the president of the Heritage Foundation, has a new column out today in the Washington Times, uh, you know, talking about uh, this issue of religious bigotry and why it is completely inappropriate and appalling uh, that uh, that some politicians would try to use this as leverage uh, to to torpedo and sink her her nomination uh, or confirmation. So uh, it's really disappointing uh, that, that it's come down to this. But I think when there's really not much else that they can can attack her on, uh, they've resorted to some of these personal attacks. Um, and and as we as we saw, even after her uh, you know, really great introduction there uh, last weekend, uh, you know, people attacking her adoption of uh, of two children from Haiti mm-hmm. and, uh, and and raising questions about that. And that talk about getting personal, Bill. I mean, there's nothing more personal than bringing the kids into it. Yeah. Would they be attacking her religion if she was Muslim? Probably not. I mean, you, you remember that, uh, that, that, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, you know, was somebody who, who you know, talked about this as well and, and, uh, and, and made clear that the limitations on, on what she would answer. Um, so I think that there are, uh, look, I, I did a really powerful interview this, this week with Rod Dreher, who's author of a new book uh, called Live Not By Lies. And, and what, uh, what Rod Dreher talks about in the book is how religion is sometimes the first thing that they come after, uh, those on the left. And we've already seen a move. I mean, I think it's, it's particularly concerning that the more and more young people are turning away from faith and religion. Uh, they, they aren't attending church on a regular basis. Um, and, and what has that created in, in our culture? What, what does the ruling elite think about uh, religion? And what they think about it is, is that it's, uh, it's a barrier to, to their, their ability to control people, not only what they think, but uh, how, they, how they act. And so they will not be uh, necessarily using just government to impose their, their will on other individuals, but they'll be trying to use religious institutions to do that as well, or they'll be trying to take religion entirely out of the equation. And I think that's what you see them trying to do here with Amy Coney Barrett is to try to embarrass her, uh, to try to embarrass other Christians, and, and in her case, Catholics, uh, who might hold these beliefs. And it's, uh, it, it, is, it has no place. Uh, our founding fathers uh, were very clear about this in the Constitution, uh, about the, you know, in the first, very, very right there in the First Amendment bill. So I, uh, I, I hope we don't see it, but uh, I'm not, uh, not holding my breath. I think that's probably going to be the line of attack we see. Mm-hmm. Rob Blue is my guest. We'll take a little break. We'll be right back with lots more. All right, we're back with Rob Bluey, executive editor of The Daily Signal. And Rob, a couple of years ago, there was the um, Alabama um, constitutional amendment called Amendment 930. Uh, This is uh, interesting. Would you tell my listeners about this? Yeah, so the the story here, again, you can find more about this on DailySignal.com, is a group of African-American leaders are asking uh, that state's Supreme Court in Alabama 
to ensure that there is equal protection under the law for black women and unborn black babies uh, that are targeted by the abortion industry. And we know that the abortion industry targets them based on the data and statistics that they themselves released. Uh, re- release. It's, it's quite uh, alarming when you look at that. Um, so, that, so they have uh, submitted this, uh, this petition to the court, um, and they, uh, they are doing so, interestingly, on, on the anniversary of President uh, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which freed slaves in Confederate states. So uh, the petition calls for uh, the Supreme Court there um, to, uh, to empower uh, you know, state officials to prohibit discrimination, when, in, in this case against, uh, like I said, black women and, uh, and their unborn black children. So... Uh, it's really um, it's really unfortunate that I think uh, abortion providers have decided that this is an er- that these are the people that they're going to target bill. Uh, but, you know, these uh, these pastors and other leaders are doing something about it and trying to take action. Mm-hmm. Rob, I don't know who writes headlines for big news organizations, but I think John Stossel did a nice job. Uh, and this article is also um, at DailySignal.com and it's called Biased Media in the Woke Era. It's just interesting the way CNN was talking about the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg versus Antonin Scalia. Oh, yes, uh, it certainly is. Well, first of all, John Stossel, as somebody who worked for some of these big media corporations, certainly knows firsthand from his own experience uh, how how deep the bias is at many of these places. But when it specifically comes to uh, the, uh, the this comparison, uh, my hometown newspaper, I'm sad to say, the Washington Post, uh, not only did they devote the entire front page practically to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, they also did a special section the following day uh, compared to Antonin Scalia, which was uh, Supreme Court conservative dismayed liberals. Right. <laughs> Certainly Love that. Not, um, yeah. not, not anywhere uh, flattering at all no. uh, when it came to Antonin Scalia. So, uh, yeah, no, you see this on a day-to-day basis. I mean, you can look no further than the the press's coverage of of President Trump, and uh, you know, like him or dislike him, and and his 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 actions, uh, you know, certainly he's he's somebody who uh, was suffering from COVID nineteen and uh, in a position where um, he could could have used all of our our prayers, and the the press's coverage of this and the the relentless attacks on on the chief of staff Mark Meadows. Uh, have just been uh, <laughs> just been another example of the bias that you see uh, critiquing every move uh, to the point where I, Bill, I just received when we were on the commercial break an email from the White House documenting all of the steps that they've taken to protect uh, those workers in the White House residence dating back to March, uh, as if they have to now justify this to the press because they're unsatisfied and think that uh, President Trump is now endangering those who who are in the White House. Um, so it is uh, it is quite uh, qu- quite alarming on a daily basis to see how biased the media is. And I think that the thing that troubles uh, an increasing number of people, especially conservatives and Christians, is how it seems that social media platforms appear to be adopting some of those same tactics And when it comes to restricting the type of content that are uh, allowed to appear on those platforms. Just last week, we had three examples of content, uh, the, the tri- trifecta, I'm calling it, because it was Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. And of course, YouTube's owned by Google. All in some ways, uh, you know, those, those platforms interfering with or restricting the content from reaching uh, the, the, the audience. And, uh, and I think that bias, uh, that anti-conservative or anti-Christian bias, is something that we need to pay attention to. And it's why we need to band together and uh, do what we can to get the message out.
I agree. And I have to read headlines slowly and just kind of take it all in. Because another point that John Stossel made was when the founder of ISIS was killed, the headline was austere religious scholar at helm of Islamic State dies. I know. Uh, I go, really? That's, uh, That's interesting. Yeah, and then and let's not let's not miss the next next one. When when President Trump's brother recently died, the headline was "Younger brother of President Trump who filed lawsuit against niece dies." Right. So I mean, it's like really, uh, you know, this is uh, this is just one example after after another. But it doesn't just stop with the Washington Post or the Atlantic or or these other outlets. I mean, it is uh, it is a problem that that I actually attribute to to journalism schools all across this country, which. For, for decades now, going back to the time uh, when I was in college, uh, you saw this firsthand. You saw activist journalism professors teaching their students to engage in this type of behavior. And now we find ourselves in a situation where so many of them are in leadership positions in the media that they're carrying it forward. And things haven't gotten any better in higher education, which, which begs the question why, why so many people still you know, donate uh, millions of dollars to these institutions uh, when they are diametrically opposed to their beliefs. Bill, I just think that it's, uh, there are so many, uh, so many uh, places that are, are doing uh, work that, uh, that deserve our support. And I'll tell you, one of them is Faith Radio. I mean, it's, it's the work that you do every day uh, to bring the good news to your listeners that, uh, that, that I think, uh, you know, uh, is a much better place uh, to make your investment because we need to be smarter as conservatives and Christians about, uh, about where we're, what we're supporting. Because, you know, when it comes to, to the media, this is, uh, this is example number one of, uh, of, of bias, and it's, uh, it's dangerous. I did find it interesting over the weekend there was a, it seemed like there was an increased concern for law enforcement because when the president went on a little motorcade ride I you know there was a lot of uproar that he was endangering secret service and I That's right. I always think well, right. secret service has to be with him all the time and part of their job is to take a bullet for the president. I know. I, I did see those uh, those complaints, and I, I thought it was interesting. Uh, for sure, there there was uh, the Secret Service agents who were in the uh, the, the SUV with the president, um, and you know, I mean, do they think that they're not standing in close proximity in the in the hospital room? I mean, or yeah. in the in the other room? So, I mean, look, uh, this is this is always that delicate balance uh, uh, where. Where the pre- no matter what the president did, he was going to be criticized. If the president wasn't providing regular updates, either with video or coming out of the ho- the hospital and doing the drive by, uh, there would have been criticism from the press that he wasn't being transparent enough, and uh, and they haven't heard from him in in, in enough. I, I, in fact, I saw criticism that the president wasn't tweeting enough. Uh, these are the same people who complain that he tweets too much and don't like what he tweets. So uh, you can never win uh, with some of these folks in the in the news media, and uh, and it's, it's they take the exact opposite position of what uh, what President Trump does. And I think that that's uh, that's one of the reasons why he felt that he needed to be so forceful and aggressive at the debate last week is because he felt he was teamed up against. Uh, you know, he not only had the moderator against him, uh, but obviously he was going up against the candidate who's who's running against him. And you might not like how the president exactly can conducted himself uh, with the frequent interruptions, but uh, I think it was a pent-up frustration that he feels almost on a daily basis. Mm, Okay, I think I'm staying out of that one. But Rob, (laughs) it's going to be an interesting uh, vice presidential debate tomorrow night. I'm looking forward to that one. 
I am too. Uh, you know, Mike Pence is uh, is somebody who uh, obviously has been in, in politics for a number of years. is a skilled debater, uh, mm-hmm. but so too is uh, Kamala Harris, yeah, who, uh, former former prosecutor. So I understand that uh, she's been getting her pointers from Pete Buttigieg, uh, who's a fellow Hoosier from from Indiana. Mm-hmm. And Pence has been getting his pointers from Pam Bondi, who's a, a frequent TV guest and uh, and also a former prosecutor. So they should both be well prepared. They're going to be socially distanced, uh, 12 feet apart with some plexiglass in between them. Yeah. So hopefully we won't have any spread of yeah. uh, COVID. And hopefully the moderator can can stay out of it and let the two of them debate. Amen. Thanks, Rob. Have a great day. Thanks, Bill. Yep, Rob Blue has been my guest, executive editor of The Daily Signal. We'll be back in just a minute with Dr. Greg Borgon as we continue our series on ethics and values. All right, we are going to continue our series with Dr. Greg Borgond about uh, leadership, values, and ethics. He is the president and founder of Heart of a Warrior Ministries. He has taught at graduate and postgraduate levels for a long time, and he's uh, written a great book called Leadership Beef Jerky. And the nice thing about this book is it is uh, kind of a smorgasbord, so we can we can pick topics and go through them, and we're going to do that today. Uh, today we're going to talk about perceiving, and that's going to be how we grasp reality and adjust our expectations accordingly. Greg, welcome to the show. It's good to be back, Bill. I am very interested in what we're going to talk about today. Good, good. So am I. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about perceiving. What is it? uh, All right. What can we learn about that? Well, you know, some people live in an alternate reality. Uh, Their narrative is fed by fictional perceptions of their own making, really, Basing our life uh, or pursuits on the alternate reality produces expectations that are often impossible to meet. If we have our perceptions um, or if we base our perceptions on truth, however, and expectations are adjusted accordingly, the outcome is much more positive, Bill. I like that. Depending, of course, on on dedication we have to pursuing a reality grounded in truth. So the Bible tells us that the truth will set us free. Uh, we must walk in the truth. John is writing uh, these verses that, that speak to truth. Truth dis, uh, dispels darkness, and Jesus is the truth. So our grasp of what is true is the best starting point of really any initiative. If we, if we engage in endeavors and, per, and proceed based on our perception of reality, not based on truth, we'll end up in places not originally planned, uh, disappointed, that we never reached our intended objective. So you may have heard the popular uh, refrain, my perceptions are my reality. Well, such a thought Mm -hmm. may be true for that person, but if it is not based on truth, Bill, the person is living in an alternate reality with little relationship to true reality. So what I'd like our audience to focus on is a little formula. Let's uh, look at a formula that helps us describe the relationship between reality and expectations and the result they they may produce. So S equals R over E. S stands for satisfaction or significance or success. Uh, R stands for reality and E for expectation. So S equals R over E. The degree to which we experience satisfaction, significance, or success really depends on the relationship between reality and expectations. Our perception of reality and the formulation of our expectations based on that reality 
is crucial to the sense of satisfaction or significance or success we really enjoy. Now, looking at satisfaction as a preferred outcome, for instance, the degree to which our expectations are less than or equal to reality will determine the degree to which we enjoy satisfaction. Now, stay with me now. Uh, looking at the formula mathematically, we can see that if reality is met with expectations that either match or approach but do not exceed reality, we'll enjoy satisfaction to its maximum. Mm-hmm. If reality, however, is met with expectations that exceed reality, we'll experience less than a satisfactory outcome to the degree our expectations exceed uh, that reality. So what I'm, what I'm trying to say is this. Our grasp of reality versus our perceptions of reality will positively or negatively impact our expectations. In other words, our grasp of the truth is critical to enjoying a satisfactory outcome or a feeling of significance or some degree of success. Okay. So go ahead. Well, just let's break that down just a little bit because uh, sure. what you just said, your, uh, your grasp of expectations, did I say that right? Can you repeat what you just said? Sure, sure. Our grasp of reality, grasp of reality versus, right. versus our perceptions of reality will positively or negatively impact our expectations. Right. So if, if we have, if we have an unclear picture of reality, if we're living our life in an alternate universe, um, then our, perce- our, our expectations will be adjusted to that, that strange uh, reality that we've created in our own mind. Does that make sense, Bill? Mm, it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Um, if, if our reality is not based on the certainty of truth and instead is based on, a, let's say, a misperception or a falsehood, then our expectations will be unrealistic. They'll be practically unattainable and essentially unrealized. So contrary to popular opinion, our, our perceptions are not reality if they're not based on truth and facts. Okay. Would you now, agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. But what truth and facts are we talking about? Let's narrow in we're on talking, that. Yeah, we're talking about the truth of, of Scripture, for instance, the truth of God's truth in this particular case, or maybe the truth of really our observations of, let's say, for instance, expectations from a school uh, on a particular subject. Let's say it might be um, mathematics. Let's say that, for instance, if I, if I wanted to be a mathematician, but I really wasn't wired for math at all. As a matter of fact, in school, me personally, in school, I wasn't good at trigonometry. I wasn't good at geometry. I wasn't good at algebra. But let's say I had in my mind, I want to be a mathematician. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I just created an unrealistic yes. reality. And if I go after that degree, I'm going to probably meet with failure because my ex- expectations will ex- exceed the truth. The truth is I'm not wired for math. Mm-hmm. So does that make sense? It does make sense, but we you know we've also heard a million stories of people that were told they were never going to amount to anything in a particular field, and then they and they rise to be the best. So, um, you know, God can operate outside of our boundaries. Of course, certainly he can make us uh, more than what we perceive that that we are. But the bigger problem, I think, Bill, is with our children. When we tell our children, for instance, that they can do anything they put their mind to. We're setting them up for an unrealistic reality if they're not wired to attain that goal. Mm-hmm. And so, for instance, if we, if we say you can do anything you want to and they try something and they fail, 
Well, then they feel miserable about it, and then maybe it takes away their initiative or even the motivation to pursue anything, simply because the expectations that were laid on them um, or the expectations that were expected of them based on an unrealistic reality is going to produce disappointment. Does, does that make sense? It makes a ton of sense, yeah. Yeah. Let's say, for instance, you know, when we tell a child, and, and you know, I hear parents doing this all the time, if you just focus, if you just are disciplined, if you're just diligent and devoted, you can do anything you want to do. And that child will approach that particular effort with all the diligence they can muster, all the effort that they can bring to the, to the issue, and meet with failure because they're not wired to be able to do what's been expected of them because they're just not wired that way. And mm-hmm. when we're talking about wiredness, we're talking about their, their, you know, their talents, their abilities, their, uh, their natural abilities, their acquired skills, the experiences that they've had, or any limitations that they might experience, for instance, in life. I have a grandson who's a high-functioning autistic. There's some things he can do really well. Some he can do better than most because he's a, really a savant in some areas. But there are other things he can't. If you, if, for instance, if, if you read something that he wrote um, on a piece of paper, it would almost be illegible inle- uh, for you. Mm-hmm. But when he types it out on a computer, it makes crystal clear sense. So, you know, you've got to adjust or help your child or anybody you lead for that matter realize what, what truly is reality and to help them adjust their expectations to that reality. Okay. So let's move it up from kids to adults when we have uh, people, peers, say they're going to do something and deep down we're thinking, that doesn't sound like a good idea. Then what? Well, that has a lot to do with wisdom, for instance, making a decision whether or not that's a, the right thing to be involved in. Mm-hmm. But let's say, for instance, um, let's, let's say, for instance, that an adult uh, decided that uh, they were going to do something or they were encouraged uh, to do something like maybe join a particular group that um, is Mensa, for instance, that uh, deals with people of, of really superior intellect and they don't have that superior intellect. Mm-hmm. The expectation is that if they just focus on it, join the group, then they'll be able to thrive. But the right. chances are they won't be able to. So let's say that we fully comprehend how, how God has wired us and that um, an opportunity presents itself that resonates with our wiring or let's say falls within the realm of our potential. Okay. Our, re- our reality at this point is true given the facts we know about them at the, at the time. Two options are possible. We adjust our expectations to this reality and therefore have a reasonable chance to enjoy success in the pursuit of that reality. Or, number two, we place expectations on ourselves that exceed reality and therefore will meet with disappointment and failure. You know, oftentimes I think, Bill, that when young adults go to college, They pick a degree that they're or a major that they're particularly interested in, only to find out that when they take some of the courses related to it, that doesn't fit them at all. Right. As a matter of fact, they're not going to succeed very well, and their grades will probably show it. So they end up changing majors. And because either they've been told by their parents that they just put their mind to it, they can do it. 
So they try something new only to find out that didn't work as well. Some of them just find their niche in real, and what they don't realize is what they're dealing with is the reality of how God's wired them. And now they're pursuing a particular major that fits that reality. Mm-hmm. So they're going to enjoy some degree of success. So my own example that I gave a few seconds ago, no matter how hard I try to apply myself, I'll not become a, a, a neurosurgeon. <laughs> I struggled through high school with, you know, chemistry and biology. And it wasn't because of effort, because one of the things that, that the reason why I was successful in, in school is that I was just tenacious. I just never gave up. Mm-hmm. But I knew there were some pursuits that were out of my reach, one of them being a neurosurgeon. So I was never good at chemistry or biology or or I didn't really enjoy blood that much. <laughs> so, so it was it was an unrealistic reality, and my expectations were unrealistic based on that reality. So some people are gifted that way, just not me. So if I set my goal at becoming a neurosurgeon, if I'm sure I would meet with little, if any, uh, success if I if I pursued that, being a stellar neurosurgeon is not a reality for me. Mm-hmm. I have other talents and gifts that I could pursue with a good chance of succeeding based on my wiring. So the, so the key is, is to find out how you're wired. How has God wired you? When he superintended your formation in your mother's home, and he knew you before you ever were, and he set the number of days you'd walk on this earth, he gave you a certain personality temperament. Embedded in your, your abilities is talents that you're born with. Now, certainly, over the course of time, you can acquire additional skills. But the fact of the matter, that universe of talents, natural abilities, and acquired skills is going to, by its very definition, give you the capacity to do some things and the inability to do others. Mm -hmm. So it's just a matter that the best thing a parent can do or a leader can do for a team is to help First of all, clarify what reality is. One of the best leaders I know in businesses and corporations, one of the first things they do when they come into a new setting or a new set of circumstances is to define or to find out what reality is. In other words, are we limited by the amount of dollars we have? Are we limited to resources? Um, and so when they meet with their team, the best thing that they can do for their team is to paint a clear picture of reality, then adjust expectations of that team against that truth, against that reality. I like that. All right, let me take a little break. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest, and we'll uh, be back in 90 seconds. with Dr. Greg Borgon, president and founder of Heart of, of a Warrior's Ministry. We're talking about perception today, finding this, finding this very interesting, Greg. And I'm just uh, thinking of people who might be in transition right now. Maybe they are gotten squeezed out of their work and they might uh, be transitioning into what next um, and their perception of themselves and their abilities may not be matching up well in the market. Uh, any counsel, counsel or advice for those folks? 
Well, sure. When we, again, talk about reality, the truth is based on, you know, what is your capacity and your capability? So the idea, first of all, when they're taking a look at, let's say, retooling themselves, because that's kind of what you're referencing, they may have been edged out of a job that they've done for a long time that tapped into some of their abilities and their skills, but now um, they have to, uh, you know, change in order to meet the needs of of maybe the workplace that no longer relies on those particular set of skills and abilities. So one of the first things I would encourage somebody to do is take a hard look, you know, to to take um, um, a a look at what what am what am I really good at? You know, what are what are my abilities? What did I enjoy? What did I not enjoy? Mm-hmm. What was I good at? What was what did I struggle with? And once they get a grasp of that truth, which we're calling reality for this discussion, then take a look at what opportunities there are available that will tap into those <clears throat> those abilities and that reassessment of what you have to offer the marketplace. But what somebody has to realize is they're never going to find a job that matches who they are 100%. What Probably the best they can hope for is maybe a 70% versus 30%. In other words, 70% of the job matches 70% of what they have to offer the job. There are always things we have to do to do what we love to do. But the goal is to make sure that things that we love to do is a higher percentage than the things we have to do or will struggle doing. So when we're looking at new opportunities, we first assess what we have to offer, it may take, you know, going so, and getting some more education or more training. Um, but we, we, once we get that nailed down, then take a look at the position descriptions of new opportunities that come your way and see if, if you have the capability and the capacity to do them. Mm-hmm. Taking into consideration, of course, what your limitations might be. There may be health issues you're, you're dealing with. Uh, there may be, uh, you know, other problems or that that might be limitations for you. Some of them are legitimate, like lack of of training or lack of experience, and some of them also legitimate are you just are not wired to do that. I mean, if somebody calls you or gives you an opportunity to pursue that has to do with finances, and over the course of your life you recognize you've not been good in them, you can put together a budget, but reading a balance sheet. Um, as a mystery to you, then probably you shouldn't pursue that opportunity mm-hmm. because it's based on the truth that you're just not wired that way. But you have other abilities, you have other talents, other skills that could easily be mined in a particular opportunity, and you could reasonably be assured that you'd have some success in, in pursuing that opportunity. Mm-hmm. So how, how do we go to prayer in God saying, this is, Lord, how I think you've wired me. What opportunity would you lead me to? Sure. I, you know, I think I would probably uh, couch my terms in my prayer uh, as follows. I'd, I'd be asking the Father, say, Heavenly Father, you've given me life. And it says in Scripture in Ephesians 2.10 that you identified a purpose for my life. And I need clarity on what that purpose is. What is, uh, you know, the other question we could ask the Lord is, as you put up a passion in my soul, 
for a particular people group or a cause or maybe a combination of the both. Father, would you clarify for me what that is so that when I pursue opportunities, I'll have some assurance that I'll be able to do well at it and honor you in the process. You know, looking at your spiritual gifts or your, again, your acquired skills, those skills that you've acquired along the way. Uh, what's your personality temperament? There are some jobs that, that uh, probably are not going to fit your temperament. I mean, if you're an extrovert and you're going to be cloistered away in a cubicle where you don't interact with people, you may be able to perform the functions but not to the maximum of your ability because you're a people person. Mm-hmm. You need to be in an environment where you're able to express your opinion without limitation. Um, if, if you're an introvert, it just simply means that you take time to, to work through a problem and, and sometimes you work better on your own. There may be cases when you work good in a group, but you're best on your own. So if the job requires you to constantly work in a group, you might have to second think whether or not that's an opportunity you want to pursue. But when you're praying to the Lord, you're trying to gain clarification about how he's wired you. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's lots of instruments you can take, certainly to give you an indication. For instance, there's no guarantee if you take a speech or gifts inventory that what's revealed in that inventory that is a real spiritual gift until you apply that uh, in a particular context or opportunity to see if God shows up when you exercise that. So it's a matter of, of prayer, and it's a matter of taking some initiative to find out whether or not you're able to do something. So, I mean, just answering even questions like, what's your natural leadership style or what are your biblically informed beliefs and values if an opportunity is going to compel you or ask you to go ahead and, and, and shade the truth to win a customer or to win a sale, uh, you probably don't want to be involved in that activity. Mm-hmm. You know, what are your life principles? Um, what contributions do you hope to make? And, you know, you, you need to put bread on the table, obviously, but is, it, is the job going to be able to leverage how God's wired you? Um, and so the questions you ask in an interview will be along those lines. Will I have an opportunity to do this, or will I have an opportunity to be involved in that? I know, for instance, in my own situation when I'm given an opportunity bill, that if, if somehow there isn't some aspect of the job that helps me develop leaders, I probably it's not going to be good for me. I may be able to do the job, but it's going to be a drudgery simply because I'm not being able to access what God's wired in me to do what I'm called to do and be. And, and so I may be able to do okay in the job, but I'm, I'm really not going to be able to thrive. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that helpful? It's very helpful. And Greg, just remind listeners, when you, know, when you mentioned what your leadership skills are, just remind everybody that they are in, in, the, in the role of leadership. Well, I, well act, absolutely. I mean, anytime you take or make uh, a decision based or be, on behalf of somebody else or take an action on behalf of somebody else, you're really leading. You may be a reluctant leader. You may not even believe you're a leader, but in effect, you are definitely leading. When God calls us to be spiritual leaders in our home, we're leading our children. So it's not just in the job, but it's in the home. It's in uh, ministry that God may give us an opportunity or volunteer work at the church. So the idea is, is that whenever you're, you're making a decision on behalf of others or you're taking action on behalf of others, you're leading. 
You may be a follower. You may not have the title of leader, but there'll be occasions when you're called to lead. Sometimes you're thrust into it, and, and so you're going to lead. So the fact of the matter is everyone leads at some time. Mm-hmm. And this is a, an important thing for all of us to understand that we will be in a leadership role, and that's, that's a good thing, and then to not fear it or, or try to avoid it. No, to do it to the best of your ability in mm-hmm. accordance with how God's wired you. So, you know, to, to kind of summarize, accurate and truthful answers to questions that we've just uh, discussed will provide a solid foundation on which to build a, a reality as to what is possible and what's not. So what can we learn from this? It's, it's very important that we know the facts, the truth of the matter, um, and that our grasp of reality is based on truth, on the circumstances. And oftentimes we have to do an environmental analysis of any job that we have to, to see what am I limited to do, what authority do I have, what resources will I have available? Answers to those questions are going to give you a sense of what reality is. Otherwise, our misperceptions of reality will set an unrealistic threshold. Our expectations based on an unrealistic threshold will, will actually meet with failure. And as God's Word reminds us, it's the truth that will set us free. Yeah. So questions to, to really ponder, Bill, are, do you have a grasp of reality or is your life based on fiction? <laughs> are your expectations based on reality? So given your innate and inborn abilities, what goals are realistic for you? Yeah. So just that little formula, S yeah. equals R over E. Uh, and doing an honest assessment will yeah. be helpful. Success equals uh, expectation. Re- reality, Re- reality over, over expectations. expectations. R over E. Okay. A lot to think about, Greg. Thank you so much for continuing this, uh, this very insightful leadership uh, series with me. I appreciate it very much. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Bill. It's always great to be with you. Yeah. Dr. Greg Borgon has been my guest, and the book we've been chatting about is called Leadership Beef Jerky. Principles and practices you can chew on. We'll keep chewing on this with Greg uh, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we'll take a little break. Our one uh, is now finished and in the books. And coming up, we're going to talk to uh, Tom Berkowitz about the book of John. Coming up next hour, be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.